freedom from human rules. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They have puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ, to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, where their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Loving Father God, thank you so much for speaking to us through the Bible. Please help us by your Holy Spirit now to see more of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Help us also to see what following Jesus is not about. Give us clarity, give us understanding, give us joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, don't you hate judgmental people? I mean, who do they think they are? Those terrible, terrible judgmental people. I really look down my noses at people like that, judging people for the way they live their lives. What a terrible way to live your life. Isn't it dreadful when people are judgmental? Well, there's a danger in not liking judgmental people, is that we turn into one, isn't there? Nobody wants to be thought of as judgmental, and yet that is what many people think Christians are. In their book, Unchristian, some researchers asked people under 30 to describe Christianity in one word. 87% said judgmental. The really sad thing was that 53% of young churchgoers said the same thing. The Christians have a reputation for being judgmental, and sometimes it's a fair cop. If you're not a Christian, maybe that's why. If that's been your experience, I'm really, really sorry, because that's not what Christianity should be. Looking down on others because they don't keep the rules, they don't do the things you do, that is not what it's about. Christianity is not about what we need to do. It is about what Christ has done. It's not about how bad other people are, but realising that we are no better and that we need saving. That is what the Christians in Colossae had come to believe, the people this letter was written to. They were trusting Jesus, that he would save them, and that was fantastic. But Paul wrote this letter to them to warn them about other people, judgmental people, people who said, well, what Jesus did was good, but you're missing something. I, I feel sorry for you, to be honest. If only you could be a bit more like me, well, then you'd have it all. Maybe you could be more religious, be more spiritual, be more disciplined. Then you'll meet the mark. But until then, 
Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Well, this bit of the Bible that Rachel read for us a moment ago tells us not to believe a word of it. Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone judge you. It's right there in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. And we'll we'll look in a moment as to what sort of things people might judge us on. But note to begin with how it starts with therefore. All of what he's going to say flows out of what he's already said. Why shouldn't people judge us? Well, because of what Jesus has done for us. So have a look back up to verse 13. He forgave us all our sins. He goes on to say that he's cancelled the charges against us, that it's all been nailed to the cross and paid for, and all that stuff we looked at last Sunday evening. All of our sins have been dealt with in Jesus. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. If you trust in Jesus, God has forgiven you. So how dare anybody else look at you as if you are not right with him? If you're trusting in Jesus tonight, I really pray that this sermon reassures you that Christ really is all you need. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, I hope it challenges you to see that being good and looking down on people who are bad is not what it is about. It is about trusting Jesus. Judging people is very, very dangerous Uh, Not least because it takes you on a dangerous progression. You see that through these verses. Verse 16 warns about people judging. So that might be saying things, thinking things, having a negative opinion of you because you don't meet their standards. There's judging. But then verse 18 talks about disqualifying. That's beyond just looking down on someone. It's considering them unsaved, treating them as a second-class person. And then verse 20 talks about submitting. Why do you submit to its rules? Because if you keep being told for long enough that you are bad because you don't do this or do that, eventually you'll believe it. And eventually, verse 20, you'll submit to those rules set up by these judgmental people. You don't do everything they do, so you get frowned at, you feel bad, you start wondering if you do have it all. And eventually you turn to the rules as well because it might make you feel better and maybe fit in. See that progression from being judged, disqualified, submitting. And Paul nips it in the bud right away and says, don't let anyone judge you. Last week we were told to continue with Christ, not to be kidnapped by lies. And this week, if you like, it's kind of a police lineup where Paul identifies the kidnappers says, these ones, officer, these are the sorts of things that might take you away from Jesus if you're not careful. These are the kinds of things that people might judge you on, and therefore you start to feel like you need those things rather than just needing Jesus. So watch out for those things. Don't let anyone judge you. Well, about what? Well, firstly, don't let anyone judge you about religious rules and rituals. Religious rules and rituals. So let's see from verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. It's about religious rules and rituals. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were given lots of rules 
about what food was dirty, what food was clean. And eating differently to everybody else marked them out as special. It was a vivid reminder that God is utterly holy. He cannot stomach sin. So as a picture of that, they couldn't do certain things. They couldn't eat pork or black pudding or things that had been killed the wrong way. Now, some people said, and some still do, that those kinds of food laws still applied to Christians. In fact, what they said probably was going beyond what the Bible says, because it says here what you eat or drink, and there's almost nothing in the Old Testament about certain drinks being unclean. These people had a list of what you can and can't eat, and if your diet doesn't match their list, well, then maybe you're not kosher. Maybe you're a bit suspect. We start thinking less of you. He says, no, don't let anybody judge you on religious rules. And that goes for the rituals as well. A religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. That's a good shorthand way of describing the Jewish calendar. You had your annual festivals, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, Then there were your new moon celebrations, unsurprisingly, about once a month. And of course, the Sabbath, the weekly day of rest. There was stuff every year, every month, every week, probably something every day as well. It's a good religious routine. I know what I'm supposed to be doing on any given day, and that's very, very reassuring. And for Jews who grew up with this, it would have been very hard to leave that behind. And they might start thinking, well, maybe those non-Jews which would have been the majority of people in Colossae, maybe they'd benefit from doing it too. In fact, maybe they're missing out if they don't. I'm not sure about these people who don't do those things. And Paul says, no, all of that is no longer binding on us. So we mustn't let anybody judge us on whether or not we do them. These things aren't bad in themselves. In fact, they were good in their day, but their day has been and gone. Verse 17 These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. We've had a bit of sun lately. It looks like we're finally getting a bit today as well. Picture yourself going for a walk. Maybe you're walking home from here. It's it's later in the day. The sun is at your back. Walking in front of you is your shadow. And you've got a friend a little way down the path. The first thing they will meet is your shadow getting there before you do. Now, when you arrive, who should they talk to, you or your shadow? Well, you, obviously. Your shadow showed that you were on your way, but now you're here. And Paul says it's like that with the religious rules and rituals in the Old Testament. The food laws, the festivals, they were shadows. They pointed to Jesus who was coming He is the reality. He is the substance. He is the person casting the shadow. And now he's here, we leave the shadows behind. You don't need to do all of that. Don't let anybody judge you because you look to Jesus and not Jesus' shadow. But does anybody judge us for this? I was trying to think if anybody but a sort of, I had an animal rights activist shout at me that I ought not to eat a bacon sandwich, but I think that's the only person who's ever really gone after me, you shouldn't eat this, you shouldn't do that. Does this actually happen? Well, I think there are some people who judge us on this sort of thing. 
Lots of people criticize Christians for what we will and won't eat. I'm thinking when people say, you Christians are hypocrites. You just pick and choose which bits of the Bible you follow. You say homosexuality is still wrong, but you're happy to eat shellfish. Well, this passage answers that, doesn't it? The food laws pointed to Jesus. Jesus has come and declared all foods clean. His death fulfills the old ceremonies too, so we don't need to do that stuff. Right and wrong haven't changed, but the outward stuff like feast days and diets have. So no, we're not picking and choosing. Don't let anybody judge you on that. But there are others too who judge us like this, looking down on us for not keeping their special days the way that they think we should. On a very minor note, I had somebody after the Jubilee service, not from here, rather unhappy with me because I hadn't done enough to flag up that it was Pentecost that Sunday. It is a special religious festival. We should have celebrated it. We really did something wrong there. I wonder what you think about that. Others might not outright say, you must celebrate this religious festival this way or you must be more Jewish. But more rules, more rituals... That would be good, wouldn't it? Might not be a new moon celebration, but are there other things that you feel you have to do, have to be part of? We like a packed religious diary as much as the next Jew. Our church calendar has plenty on it. There's something happening every day for the next few weeks. If I go to all of it, will I be holier? Is it like my old secondary school? With God keeping a register and giving a special prize if you go a year with 100% attendance? Are you ill? Bad luck, you don't get a special prize. It's the prayer meeting on Tuesday. I highly recommend it. It would be great to see you there. It's really good to get together and pray. Can I be completely clear? You don't have to be there. I would love to see you. I'm sure it will be worthwhile. But if you think you must... Be careful. If you want to celebrate the special day, you want to go to this festival, that festival, that's fine. But if you think you have to, or that others have to, you might be denying the sufficiency of Jesus. Because Jesus has done it all. And so we mustn't let anyone judge us on religious rules and rituals, whether you do them or whether you don't do them. Because you can easily turn it the other way around and go, oh my goodness, those people who do do those things. Either way is beside the point you are free to ignore those things or not to if you find they help you embrace Christ all the more. But it is Christ that we need, not religious rules and rituals. It's also not super spiritual experiences. Don't let anybody judge you on super spiritual experiences either. Verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. Now, disqualifying is something an umpire does. Was the ball in or out? Who finished first or second or third in the race? You're in, you're disqualified. Don't let anybody say that you didn't quite make it in or you're not as in as them on the basis of super spiritual 
experiences. Well, what kind of things is that talking about? Well, one thing mentioned here is the worship of angels. That almost certainly can't mean actually worshipping angels because that would just be very easy to call out as wrong. That's idolatry. That's worshipping somebody other than God. But it could be a fascination with angels that borders on worship. I think most likely it's the worship of angels in the sense that it's the worship angels do. Because you think angels are right there, they're in heaven, they're with God. And maybe if we sing in this way or pray in that way, then we can join their special angelic worship time. Maybe we do things with a special intensity, maybe with a special language or a special action. But if you worship like this, oh, it's like being whisked up to heaven for a moment. You get really close to God. You mean you haven't done that? You mean your church isn't like that? Oh, you must, you haven't lived. What do you mean you can't do it? You don't have that particular gift. Oh dear, I feel very, very sorry for you. You can see how it might happen and how it might make Christians feel like they were missing out. Now, this isn't to deny the reality of spiritual experience or even the benefit. The problem is when those things are used to qualify some people and disqualify other people. You have to do it. Or at least you have to if you want to be seen as a spiritual person. That's nonsense. Don't let anybody judge you for that. We're told they go into great detail about what they have seen. Visions, secrets that God has shown them. Nowadays, there's a whole genre of books called heaven tourism. You know, when people write about how they visited heaven for 90 minutes, or I went to hell for 23 minutes, or I visited purgatory for half an hour. I don't know what it is, but that sort of idea. And these books become bestsellers. They become movies despite having so little in common with what the Bible actually says. Why are those sorts of things popular? Oh, because it's spectacular, isn't it? Wouldn't you love to see those things? Does it make you feel a bit boring? All of my sermon illustrations are about stuff in the news or things from my family or football or something like that. Wouldn't you like it if I was more like the other day? God revealed to me the mysteries of the universe. That would be more exciting, wouldn't it? Some special thing you won't hear anywhere else. But in a way, he has revealed the mysteries of the universe. You remember chapter 1, verse 26 and 27? There is a mystery that God kept hidden for ages and has now made public. And that mystery is Christ, Jesus Christ in you, in ordinary people like us. The cat is out of the bag. There are no more secrets. There's no elite group with insider information. We have it all. We know everything we need to know. Experience itself is not the problem. It's going on about it. <laughs> Paul himself was taken to heaven once. Did he go on about it? No. He said that it happened and he said, I can't talk about it. <laughs> because it could be a distraction from Jesus. And these visionary people, they like to think they're spiritual, but the end of verse 18 is cutting, isn't it? Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. He says they're puffed up, they're full of hot air. It's not spiritual. It's flashy, exciting and new. It's all about their big head. 
not about the head, Jesus. Verse 19, they've lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Now, I don't recommend you do this, but what would happen if you chopped the head off someone's body? Not only would they be about a foot shorter, they would die. That is not something you want to do if you are looking to help somebody grow. And yet that is what he's saying here. These people in their attempt to grow, they've chopped the head off the body. For a while after death, your hair and fingernails appear to be growing. They're not. It's actually the skin drying and receding back. It's a lovely thought, isn't it? But that is what these people are like because they have what looks like growth and vitality, enviable vitality. But if they're not all about Jesus, then they are like a headless body. It's only being connected to the head that the body, verse 19, grows as God causes it to grow. That's the sort of growth we want, isn't it? There is a growth that isn't from God, and we don't want it. Growth at all costs is the theology of the cancer cell, not the church. We want to grow. Of course we want to grow. But growth that comes from God comes from Christ. So be very careful if Jesus and the news about his death is no longer what excites you. If he isn't what you focus on or make a big deal of. If things are starting to become about how we worship, not who we worship. As we chase an atmosphere, either of quiet spiritual reflection or modern rock concert intensity, neither of those things are the point. The music, the musicians... I say this as someone in the music group today. I wasn't expecting to be, but I was. <laughs> we do not lead you into God's presence. Jesus does that. So don't be intimidated. Don't feel second rate because your spiritual life seems less than other people's. It is not. Don't let anybody disqualify you because chapter 1, verse 12, the Father has qualified you. And nobody, not even Hawkeye at Wimbledon, can say that you are out if God says that you are in. Don't let anybody disqualify you or judge you on super spiritual experience. Well, final thing, don't let anybody judge you on harsh self-discipline. Don't let anyone judge you on harsh self-discipline. See, verse 20 to 23 describe a sort of boot camp Christianity. Get yourself together, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, follow the rules, and then you will start making some progress. See, from verse 20. Since, with, uh, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These harsh rules. Now, rules like that sound very godly, but we're told here that they're worldly. It's following the same pattern as everybody else trying to whip themselves into shape. Verse 23 talks about 
regulations, self-imposed worship, harsh treatment of the body. There is a long tradition of people thinking that physical things are bad, spiritual things are good. So you must avoid physical things and then you will be more spiritual. Or you need to make yourself have a horrible time physically and then that will do you some kind of good. One extreme example of this sort of harsh treatment of the body, I don't know if you remember reading or watching The Da Vinci Code, there was the character Silas who was that albino monk who would whip himself to get rid of his sin. It's tragic really. It's really tragic to see this man desperate. God wants us to repent, but not to be unnecessarily harsh to ourselves. Discipline is good. It's good to go to the gym, I should point, maybe start doing that. It's good to work hard. But your body is not a bad thing to be punished. There's already been one man whipped for your sin, and that is Jesus. So there's no more need for harsh treatment like that. Now, you don't have to be into self-harming to be into harsh self-discipline. You just need to be into rules. Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, don't, 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 don't. Defining ourselves by what we're against. As the old slogan went, we don't drink, smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Remember hearing that? Well, just thinking we can avoid certain things or certain people and then we can stay safe. We can quarantine ourselves and avoid catching the sin virus when we've actually all got it already. Now, this is more than just talking about avoiding sin. It is good, it is right not to sin. This is about defining sin in very specific, measurable terms, very strictly enforced. Adding rules around the rules. In fact, making up new sins and then trying to avoid those. Or as it says here, merely human commands and teachings. Self-imposed worship. The Bible doesn't command it. You just came up with it yourself or somebody else did and then insisted on it. People criticise religion for being full of made-up rubbish and oppressive rules. Well, the Bible got there first in that criticism. And it's telling us right there, don't submit to that kind of stuff, those sort of made-up rules. But we carry on somehow thinking that stricter must be better. And we can end up a bit suspicious of people who seem to be enjoying themselves. Surely it's better to be dour and serious. We feel like we're being a proper Christian if we're doing very, very hard things. God must be especially pleased with me if I'm doing something I don't like or if I'm giving up something that I do like. As if he is not the giver of good things but the confiscator for our own good. Was that fun? No. Well, it must have been very good for you then. No pain, no gain. Same with quiet times. We have an idea that we are holier if we do them a certain way or if we get up while it's still dark to read our Bible and pray. It's hard, isn't it, when the, the days are a bit lighter, you've got to get up really early to be that holy. Or we start thinking that God loves us a bit less if we miss a day or two. 
Again, don't mishear me. Reading your Bible is good. Being disciplined with it is good. But beware of feeling like you have more of God or are more acceptable to him when you're having a good day or less when you're not. Feeling better for reading the Bible, not because you actually learned anything or it helped you or you understood it, but because you did it. Tick, done. Verse 20 tells us we have died to that worldly approach to rule keeping. So don't submit to it again. Don't let other people judge you about it. Even though harsh discipline can seem wise. Verse 23 says such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. It looks sensible, it looks respectable. You can get a good reputation doing all this stuff. The problem is it doesn't actually work. Sometimes we can think, if I replaced the gospel with strict rules, it might not be great, but at least we'd be quite godly, wouldn't we? You know, the stick is much better than the carrot at getting results. That's not true. It says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Harsh discipline like that doesn't actually work. It's God's kindness which leads us to repentance. It's God's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Beating yourself up, beating somebody else up over our lack of discipline is not what God is after. Because it doesn't affect your heart. God wants to shape our character, not just tidy up our habits. He wants to transform our relationships, not just fill our diary and our to-do list with Christian activity. Now, The rest of Colossians outlines just how much our lives do need to change. But as we'll see over the next few weeks, it is the gospel that changes us. Not religious rules and rituals, not super spiritual experiences, not harsh discipline. No, it is Christ that we need. Christ is all you need. Have you really realized that? That you don't need all of that other stuff. Christ is what we need. So we don't need to feel judged. We don't need to do more. We are not missing out. So don't feel like you are. And let's not make other people feel like they are either. Perhaps there's an issue you feel very strongly about or a spiritual practice you found really helpful. Well, that's, that's great. That's really good. But be careful how it sounds to other people. Are we pointing to Jesus and his finished work or to ourselves and our ongoing work? Are we banging on about Christ all the time? Or about all the stuff we need to do and be at and experience. We all want to grow and that is not the way. And it's really hard, isn't it? Because those kinds of things are much easier to measure. We can compare ourselves to other people favourably or less favourably. But all of that outward stuff is not the answer. Nor is it the answer to avoid all that stuff. So here's the key to growth. Avoid any rituals, have no experiences and be really ill-disciplined. Now that's not it either. The answer is Christ. It's ongoing faith in Christ. To be qualified, to grow, he is all we need. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have qualified us. We trust in Jesus and are so glad to be forgiven. We thank you for that. Help us not to be judged by others on what we do or we don't do, especially when it's things you haven't even asked us to do. Please help us to rest in the good news of sins forgiven. Help us not to judge other people either or to give in and submit to that sort of nagging. Instead, please help us to continue with faith in Christ. And it's in his name we ask it. Amen.